You're listening to the Pops on Hops podcast, where we listen to some pops, drink a little hops, and I get to hang out with my pop. And today, my uncle. I'm Abigail Hummel. And I'm Barry Hummel. And we want to welcome you to episode 68, which happens to be our next jukebox episode submitted by my brother and Abigail's uncle, Derek Hummel. Tonight, we're going to be talking about the album He's the DJ, I'm the Rapper by DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, Philadelphia favorites. Derek's got a long story about how he came upon this album and why it's such a favorite for him. Derek, thanks for jumping on. Thanks for having me. We also want to uh, warn everybody that you're responsible for the beer tonight. What did you corral as far as beer goes tonight? Um, We're going to be drinking some Evil Genius out of Philadelphia, selection of Three IPAs, a couple of fruity ones, Challenge Accepted, Hazy IPA, Adulting, which is a guava IPA, Purple Monkey Dishwasher, which is a chocolate peanut butter porter, and Main Character Energy, which is a hazy kiwi dragon fruit IPA. That sounds fabulous. I believe the second one you mentioned is actually hashtag adulting, Uncle Derek, which makes it uh, even more funny. Millennial. <laughs> These are some very millennial beer names, in all honesty. Well, yeah, when he said purple monkey dishwasher made me think of Rainbow Kitten Surprise, actually. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Total sense. Yeah. Which one are we going to have first, Uncle Derek? Yeah, I want to crack one open while you're telling us about the album. I would go with main character energy, hazy kiwi dragon fruit. All right. He's sliding and ooh, he poured it into a glass to give us a color ooh, update. Ooh. I brought this one back out for us. Oh, oh nice. I like that. That's got to be like four Dave Z fingers of foam. How many fingers of foam you got there, Derek, with that pour? My hand, three. Three? Probably two of Dave's. <laughs> <laughs> Dave's got some big fingers. All right. I have cracked mine open. Abigail, are you ready? I'm very excited for this one because I like both kiwi and dragon fruit. I do too. Let me read the description on the can. We stand an original. Once again, with the millennial slang, White Castle and Evil Genius are at it again with another craveably sophisticated collaboration. This time, kiwi and dragon fruit flavors combine with the intense citrus and tropical notes of Simcoe and Strata hops. It's bold, it's tasty, and it's best served with sliders. Ooh. We don't have any sliders, but we have a DJ sliding on the tracks. Scratch it. Scratch it. Does that work? Yeah. Close enough. <laughs> Close enough. <laughs> Best serve with scratching. Oh, that's really good. Oh, my gosh. Derek, have you been to this brewery? I have not, but I've had this on draft. And I got to tell you that it's not really good canned. Like, it's good canned. But if you had it fresh off the tap and it wasn't compressed into a can, you'd be even more impressed with it. I mean, this is extremely smooth easy to drink, very fruity. I'm not sure I can identify dragon fruit per se in here, but it tastes of kiwi. It tastes identifiably of kiwi. I agree. And it's not super hoppy. You get a little bit of hop kind of late in the sip. Pretty much when you've already swallowed it is when the hops come in, which I don't mind at all. But yeah, this is really delicious. Yeah, and it doesn't hang around for a long time. A little bit of hop flavor. No, sure doesn't. I will tell you this. If I knew it was paired well with White Castle sliders, I might have thought about getting some dried ice and sending some down to you. <laughs> I've never had White Castle. Oh, oh you haven't lived. You really got to be extremely, how should I say? Drunk? Isn't this a family? Isn't it a PG-13 episode? <laughs> it's got to be like 2.30 in the morning. 
after you went to like eight bars, mm. then you go get six pack of White Castle sliders, and you just sit there, and they're so good, Abigail. Really so good. I like how you danced around drunk for uh, your quote-unquote PG-rated thing by saying it's got to be 2.30 in the morning after eight bars. <laughs> like that dissuaded people that you weren't technically drunk. <laughs> okay, according to the album cover, I am the drunk. <laughs> You're the talkers. I'm the drunk. The drinker. The drinker. <laughs> technically different. We don't have you drunk just yet. <laughs> So when you submitted this, or when you were telling me after I let you know that it was uh, time to do this album, you told me a great story about how you came across the album. So I think we should start there. How did you find this album? So, you know, the mid 80s, towards the 90s, Power 99 out of Philadelphia, they had a DJ who just makes music up every Friday night, Saturday night. Actually, we used to put cassette tapes in, press record, go out for the night and just record whatever we could. Um, that guy's name was Jeff Mills. He was just awesome. And one of my buddies heard parents just don't understand in that mix. So we were on a field trip. We went to Washington, D.C., and he goes, you got to find this cassette. And sure enough, during the field trip, walking around, uh, we found a record joint. We walked in there, and sure enough, he had it. And like I said, as we had conversations, is I bought this album six months before its official release in February. Bought the cassette tape, listened to it on my Sony Walkman on the bus on the way home because this guy heard parents just don't understand. Instantly intrigued by it. Um, it was really hard for me. I'm going to have to try to pick three, but I could pick one from three different reasons why the album meant so much to me because there's different elements. There's songs that we dance to. There's songs that we skated to their songs that we partied to so like i could pick one in each of those categories without picking the top three it's a really diverse album from a rap standpoint at the late 80s did you own other rap albums prior to this or was this like your first foray into that no you know i had some boogie down production stuff before that growing up we listened to the sugar hill gang you know some of that breakdancing stuff prior to that you know, Run DMC. 86 was Beastie Boys licensed to ill. No, I had plenty of rap stuff. Like I said, we used to record the stuff, pop it in our car cassette and listen to the stuff that Jeff Mills played the week before during the week. And that was very diverse back then. I still had that stuff to try to get on some kind of new technology to go back and listen to. But it was an uncut four-hour segment of him mixing, scratching, cutting music on top of Friday night. So he was doing some DJ mixing and scratching in the studio. So you were hearing some of these songs mixed into that. Yeah. Sometimes when you went to a skating rink, they would have Power 99 live, and they wouldn't have somebody there playing the music in their booth. You said you had some of these old cassettes that he had done. Do you still have your cassette tape of this album? I do, as a matter of fact. Oh, check that out. Wow. How cool is that? So uh, what I found interesting in a little bit that I read about it was this was the first double vinyl album in the hip hop category. So the double vinyl had 18 tracks. They were in exactly the same order. And one track got dropped when they did the cassette and the CD versions of these. And I think it was the old track 10 that got dropped out. So it wasn't radically different on CD or cassette tape than it was on the double vinyl. And... It was a pretty popular album, had three singles from it. We'll talk about those as we come across them. But the album overall, it ended up being certified platinum. It actually reached number
number 12 on the U.S. Billboard Hot 100. And one of the singles reached uh, number 15 on the Billboard Hot 100 singles. So it had a lot of crossover appeal. And I think one of the reasons, and we'll probably talk about this as we go through the album, is this is not sort of a gangster rap album. It's pretty clean as far as a rap album goes. I will say that most of it, the vast majority of the songs on here are them talking about how superior they are as rappers. Like that's the main theme of the album. There's very few songs that have a narrative story. You mentioned uh, Parents Just Don't Understand. That's probably one that's got a story to it. There's probably maybe three or four like that. But the rest of them are them doing dance party tracks where they promote themselves over and over and over again. And I actually, for a bit, when I was going through the tracks, I was rating them on, I I was calling it the self-aggrandization scale and I was giving it a rating from (laughs) zero to five, (laughs) much like untapped. That's very funny. Was it funny. five out of five? Was it three out of five on how much they self-promoted? Did you do that on quarter point increments or tenth point increments? <laughs> no, I just did it on single. I didn't <laughs> uh, I didn't really get into the nuance. It was sort of like moderate, high, off the chart. Nothing was less than a three. No. Because in every song, they kind of mentioned themselves. But it's clean. There's no foul language. There's some misogyny. There's some homophobia sprinkled throughout. But it's not dirty or raunchy. So as far as that goes, it's, I'd say, a reasonably wholesome album, right? Well, there's one thing I think is a little controversial. And the other thing I found interesting, there's one track on here that's a live track. And Will Smith says he's, uh, and by the way, his name's Willard. So if I call him Willard for the rest of the night, please forgive me, because that's really his first name. But he said that he was 17. He was doing like a live performance in Brooklyn at the age of 17, which I found really interesting. I had no idea they started that young. Well, he in Parents Just Don't Understand, he's 16, or the narrator. Good thing. He's 16 because the other character is not. <laughs> yeah, we'll get into it. But Barry, to tell you about where you talk about how they promote themselves in that era of rap, if you listen to 20 more albums in that two year span, you're going to hear the exact same thing. That's what they did. When you get into the gangster rap, the lyrics are a little bit different. It's the same thing, it's just a little bit more perplexing but this is what they did in live performances right they went and they had these rap battles i mean there's one song on here where it's almost like the the old novel 10 little indians yeah where he's going through it as each group you know it's down to five it's down to four it's down to three so a lot of that is built into the ether of what the art form was at the time where they go live and they compete against each other so i understand where it comes from i just found it interesting that on an album where you're not really battling anybody that so much of the album is focused on the battling and not necessarily the storytelling. And the songs that I had the most appeal to on the album were the ones that kind of had a story that was other than that. And that's because I'm a lyrics guy. And I find the fact that I know they did a lot of this live and spur of the moment that the guy could write those kinds of rhymes spontaneously in a performance, fascinating. So lyrically, I think this is a really fun album, but I was more drawn to the things that had a little bit of narrative storytelling to them. There's maybe four songs on here like that. Because the other ones, it was the same thing kind of over and over and over again. And musically, they were different, but lyrically, they were kind of very similar. So none of those really stood out to me, except maybe track two, which was about them writing the album, which I thought was a meta sort of thing. Because if I own the album, I don't need him to tell me to buy the album. Exactly. But the funny story about that is when I told you that I thought half the album was released prior to, and I thought I bought half the album, but Again, the album I bought had 17 tracks on it. So it goes back to that mystery on what we heard, 
six months prior to when they said it was released. It's just funny, you know, when I bought the album, I didn't need to be sold on the album by a track because I had bought the album. I just thought that was ironic. It's very silly. Abigail, did you have any kind of overarching thoughts on the entire album? Yeah, I don't think I will be listening to this one again. (laughs) Really? Okay. I don't care for this album. I agree with what you said, Dad. There are maybe four tracks on here that have a story. And I think the reason a lot of people like hip hop is because it's a medium to talk about sort of important things that happen in the black community. I mean, I think that's how hip hop and rap really started. When we did the Logic album, it was all sort of big, important issues. It was this guy's life and his struggles and how he perceived the world. And this is basically 17 tracks of these guys saying, we're the best. Our music is so deaf. I don't get it. I don't care for it. And I'm not a fan. We talked about this on the last album that you submitted, Uncle Derek. I don't care for that DJ scratching sound. I don't get why that is considered impressive. I wasn't around in the time when that was becoming a thing. And it doesn't sound pleasant to me on the ears. And so when you have whole tracks or like huge sections of these tracks, that's just DJ Jazzy Jeff showing off his skills at the DJ table. I just tune that out. I don't need any of that. It doesn't mean anything. I don't find it pleasant to listen to. I understand that that was the deal at the time. And that was how people were making music and performing live. And maybe it's cool to see a DJ live scratching. I don't know. I've never seen that happen, but I just don't get it. And so I really don't care for this album much at all. But I think we're going to have some interesting things to talk about because there's a lot of lyrics on this album that I find disturbing and repugnant. So, (laughs) And I, as far as scratching thing, I think that's an amazing skill set, but I agree with you. I think it's probably really impressive to see live. You could tell the skill on these recorded tracks. The amount of effort that goes into trying to time that out just blows my mind. I find that to be a fascinating approach to creating an audio track. And I think when we talked about that previous album by Incubus, that one of the scratch tracks was something I put in the top three because on that album... It was an outlier. Yeah. I found it interesting musically on that album because I think, Derek, you said at the time that they gave this guy the track to, you know, to show off his skills. And when I looked at this album, I was trying to figure out the breakdown because as a double disc, I was wondering if one of the discs was to focus on Will Smith and one of the discs was to focus on DJ Jazzy Jeff. It doesn't break out like that entirely, but it does kind of fall almost like that in the sense that after the first nine tracks, I think three of them don't even have a lot of lyrics or like essentially instrumentals there's some vocals on it but then not enough that they even put a lyric sheet out yeah it's mostly just will going that's my dj that's so deaf dude (laughs) yeah and then on top of that even in the tracks musically where there are lyrics there's more focus on not just dj jazzy jeb i think they also focus more on the beatbox guy or bring bring more attention to him in the back half of the album that they do in the front half of the album. So the first nine tracks play almost like a more traditional collection. And then the back half are a little more of the art form and do focus more on the elements of hip hop. So it wasn't a hundred percent like you know the old thing about double fantasy, right? The John Lennon Yoko Ono album from 1980. The reason it was called double fantasy was it was supposed to be a double album, and one of them was going to be a John album, and the other one was going to be Yoko stuff. And then instead of that, they made a single disc out of it and kind of went back and forth. So they still ended up calling it double fantasy. That story made me think about this, or vice versa. This made me think about that, and so I was looking for that, and some of that bears out, I think, in the track listing. 
Well, let me get on to the track by track then. So track number one is a song I actually was familiar with and was one of the singles as well. And that's called Nightmare on My Street. I strolled back home with a grin on my grill. I figured since this is a dream, I might as well get ill. I walked in the house, the big, bad, fresh prince. But Freddy killed all that noise real quick. He grabbed me by my neck and said, Here's what we'll do. We got a lot of work here. Me and you, the souls of your friends, you and I will play. You've got the body and I got the brain. I said, yo, Fred, I think you got me all wrong. I ain't partners with nobody with nails that long. Look, I'll be honest, man, this team won't work. The girls won't be on you, Fred, your face is all burned. I pat him on the shoulder, said, thanks for stopping by. Then I opened up the door and said, take care of the guy. He got mad, drew back his arm and slashed my shirt. I laughed at first and thought, hold up, that hurt. It wasn't a dream, man, this guy was for real. I said, Freddy, uh, how it's been an awful mistake here. No further words, and then I darted upstairs. Crashed through my door, then jumped on my bed. Boom, the covers up over my head, said, oh, please do something with Fred. He jumped on my bed, went through the covers with his claws, tried to get me. But my alarm went off, and then silence. It was a whole new day, I thought. <laughs> I wasn't scared of him anyway. So, um... The reason I was familiar with this one is that I bought a collection, kind of a new wave Halloween album. And this track appears on one of the CDs I bought when I was doing those compilation discs. So I knew this one and it's my favorite song on the album. I like that narration. The part I played where it's kind of some hip dialogue discussing Freddy Krueger, I found very, very fun. I like the fact that it was, we went to the movie, but then this really happened. But did it really happen? I thought I was dreaming, but I wasn't dreaming. You know, they break the fourth wall a lot. And so I'll say break the fourth wall. So much of it's personal and first person, but it's always with a, with a wink and a nod, like we're talking about before, where they kind of say, we're the best, we're the greatest, this and that. I feel like they're always looking at the audience when they do that. And so at the end of this, he calls TJ Chassy Jeff to warn him. And I find that funny too, but it sets that pattern, right? That we're going to talk about ourselves. It's not third person narration or even first person narration. In a lot of ways where we're telling remote stories, even when they do a narrative story, it's about them, but at least it's a narrative story. And so I really like this song a lot. And so I made it my favorite for that reason. It's my favorite too, dad. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> All right. Early match. Look at that. And I also was familiar with it because of that Halloween album that you had. Never knew it was DJ Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince, but had heard this song many times. And I think this is great. It tells a narrative story. It's truly scary. There are some very scary elements in here when they do the Freddy Krueger voice. I think that's great. They incorporate what I assume is the theme song or some element of the theme song to Nightmare on Elm Street a sample running throughout. And I think that's clever. And it's a spooky riff. And so it just adds to the kind of atmosphere that they build in this song. And I agree with you. There's no self-aggrandizing in this one. It's about them being scared of a monster. And I like that. It's like the most down to earth they're ever going to get on this album. And I appreciate that about this song. Plus it sends a chill down my spine. So this is my favorite song on the album. The story was that they were working on this track for Nightmare on Elm Street 4. And then ultimately the producers of the film decided that they didn't want to include it for whatever reason. And so these guys released it on this album. And then there was some controversy around 
around that where they had to start putting a disclaimer on the releases that said, this has nothing to do with the movie. They had to actually claim that, which I thought was really interesting. Yeah, I was thinking like this would have been a great opportunity for like a brand partnership, you know? Yeah, but this would have been that classic track that went over the end credits. Yeah. Didn't really have to be in the film. It could have been the thing that made the soundtrack and was over top of something at the end. It's a pretty fun song. It is. It probably would have been good on a soundtrack. Yeah, I love the song. I have too many other songs. Most of the songs that you know won't be in my top three. Even parents just don't understand. Is It's what brought me to the album, but ultimately at the end of the day, it's not one of my favorite on the album simply for the places I was and things I did while I was listening to the rest of the album. So as much as I love this song and could be one, same as parents just don't understand, it's low on my list only because I lived the album. We did things while we were listening to the album. So it's an awesome song, ranks up there high and probably among a bunch of rap songs in the history of rap, but low on my poll for the top 17 here on this album. Do you know, Uncle Derek, did Will Smith or did Jeff do the Freddy Krueger voice? I do not. As real as it sounds, I'm not so sure they didn't get rights to use his voice. That's his voice. I don't think anybody can replicate that, to be honest with you. I mean, it's just a voice filter, right? I'm wondering if the beatbox guy might have done oh, that. One of the, because there's, sure. you know, he sings on some other songs. He's got a very deep voice. Maybe they just put a, an effect on his voice and he just kind of impersonated it. It's hard for me to know. I bought this one digitally, so I didn't have it with liner notes or anything where I could kind of look through it and see who got credited with those things. I will tell you that the track that did not appear on the disc that was on the double album is called Another Special Announcement. It's about a two minute song. It's very repetitive and everybody in the band gets a chance to do this repetitive lyric. And as part of the joke, the voice of Freddie that we're hearing here comes in and does this song. Oh, fun. And so I'm thinking it has to be somebody internal to the band because I don't think that the actor, even if they had the rights, would be able to do what happened in that bonus song. And by the way, that song called Another Special Announcement you can hear on Spotify. We should put a link in the show notes so people can go hear it because it is kind of a fun song, but I could see why they would have dropped it. So I think it's somebody from their core group of uh, performers. All right. I think we'll move on to track two then. So track two is called Here We Go Again. This is the one I mentioned before that's really the one that uh, promotes the album that we're listening to. <laughs> find that pretty funny in the sense of 
you know, just go buy the album. This was the first one where I kind of went, um, I'm going to start. Initially, I wrote moderate ego or moderate self-aggrandizing on this particular one. So I gave it three out of five on that scale. And mostly it's because they're talking about going out and getting this album. Our last album was great. This one's great too. Go out and buy it. And this was the one where I, I remember reading somewhere, and Derek, you might be able to confirm this, that one of the things that stood out was that they sampled a lot more jazz kind of elements. And again, DJ Jazzy Jeff, the name that he used, reflects the fact that they use that. And this has got a very jazzy vibe to it. So what they're sampling there or what they're playing is essentially jazz music, which I find really cool. So I do like this song. It's in the top half of the album for me. You know, like I said before, I think the reason I didn't bump some of these up is because I like the ones that told the narratives like the last one more than the I hear I'm telling, I'm talking about myself just for the sake of talking about myself. And I'll say, Abigail, your comment about, I probably wouldn't listen to this album again. The scratch stuff doesn't bother me. I find that kind of interesting. You know, I played this a lot while I was working and I could zone out on this album. Yeah. That's that I could play it and do work because there was so much instrumentation that was interesting. And because the lyrics were kind of repetitive, I didn't really need to focus in on what he was saying because he was kind of saying the same thing in a lot of the songs. So I liked playing this. I, there's a lot of hooks in here that I really, really liked musically. And I think I will play this album again because I think this is a good one for me to play as a work album because I can kind of tune out and really just enjoy the music and this is a great example of that, this particular track. That's fair. And I agree. I mean, I was doing my last listen before we hopped on and I was just bopping around the whole house. The beats are very danceable beats. But my problem with that is other than maybe a handful, the beats to me all sound very similar. <laughs> like I'm doing the same kind of moves. Like there's very little variation in tempo. It's all Dun, 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 dun. Like it's all kind of the same beat all throughout the album. And so, yeah, it's very internally consistent. I can always move to any of these songs, but you know, 17 tracks of it. I'm like, okay, I've had enough. Like, I feel like I've heard this 10 times already. I think the tempo is pretty consistent. I would disagree. I think they're each unique to some degree musically until you get to the back half where it's a lot more of the scratch heavy stuff. The first nine songs, you know, there's a really funky song. There's a really bass driven song. There's this one that's got a lot of smooth jazz sound to it. So while the tempo is the same and they kind of blend together nicely in that regard, the musical elements do vary, which I find interesting. They are all of the same tempo. There's a tempo to them and a rhythm to them that's incredibly consistent throughout the album. Very consistent in a way that I found samey. And this one, when this came on and I realized it was just them talking about how great their album was and how great their last album was, I was like, I don't care. <laughs> Thanks for sharing. You know? <laughs> What I do like, though, they use the word deaf a lot, which has obviously a rap meaning, meaning, you know, great or superb. It's deaf. They say it a lot in many, many of these songs. Zach, my brother's rap persona is Deaf Papa. You know, it's spelled the, the rap way, D-E-F, but he is actually deaf, like hard of hearing. And so I think that that's very clever of him to call himself Deaf Papa. So shout out to Zach, shout out to Deaf Papa for the very <laughs> clever name. Quick disclaimer, though Zach is deaf, he's not a papa. So that's true. I do have yeah. to explore why <laughs> the other half of the name with him sometime, <laughs> unless there's something he's not telling us. I don't think it's that. <laughs> I never know in this family. Let me know if I'm an uncle. Well, you're already an uncle. Well, you're a great uncle, I think. Yeah, and your other nephew also already has kids, so you're already a great uncle. I really have a lot to say about this song because um, as much as I listen to music, hard rock, alternative, 
rap. I love jazz. And part of what drove me to listen to the album and pick this album was the jazz elements in numerous songs here. To Abigail's point, I'd love to put you in a time capsule and bring you back into the 80s to listen to other albums. You're listening to one album of many albums that, like you said, the repetitiveness, the we brag about each other, we're bragging about ourselves. That was just part of what this music was back then. You're listening to one album of 50 that if you listen to all 50 albums, I think maybe you'd have a different respect for why these guys brag about each other and brag about themselves throughout the course of the album, right? It was just music back then. This is one of my favorite songs only because of the jazz element that doesn't make my top five because as we get into the other songs, as I mentioned earlier, especially with the next song, you understand why that ranks high on my list. But the jazz element in this song was, as a jazz fan, it was good. I assume it was all synthesized, but it has kind of a woodwindy sound to it. And I enjoyed that very much as well. Well, they may have sampled actual jazz tracks. I don't know. Some of the horn sections are repetitive, so it could very well just be a four bar or a 12 bar jazz riff that they played repetitively in the background. Because it does sound like horns, real horns, Abigail, to me. It sounded quite digital to me, but I hear what you're saying, Dad. Sampling is one of the techniques of hip-hop and rap that I actually happen to love. I think that's a really fun element that is key to a lot of hip-hop and rap. And so I hear you, Uncle Derek, and I appreciate all the samples they use on this album. And I also hear what you're saying about putting me in a time capsule and taking me back. You know, like most of the hip-hop and rap I listen to is from 2003 on. The genre had changed a lot by that time. But even the rap in the 90s, I feel, was very issues-based. They were talking about actual things. And I didn't find any of that here. The difference with Abigail, and I've discussed this with many people, I don't listen to hip-hop and rap today. Early 90s, mid-90s, I kind of quit listening to it just because of the verbiage for women and people. The thug life part of it kind of took me away from it. From the early 80s to, say, 92, there was a few bands, Boogie Down Productions, Public Enemy, who was really political, to name a couple of them off the top of my head, that sent that message that you hear today that was powerful back then. That was good stuff, right? And I kind of like separated myself when it was about the B's and H's and toting guns. And so I separated myself from that. Like I said, if I brought you back in the time capsule, you got to hear seven years of hip hop when I listened to it, including this album, I believe... It might even change your perspective on what you listen to today. We had a lot of fun with this music, which is why it's hard for me to pick three songs. Because, like I said earlier, I can pick three songs where I remember hanging out at the skating rink. You know, I can pick three songs when I had my windows down and my top down. And we had the woofers and tweeters bumping loud, trying to pick up girls. You know what I mean? So... I know it's hard for you to listen to some of the stuff you don't like to listen to. I know you don't like the scratch part of it, but that was a big part. It was a way to make music that was unique to other forms of music. It's like listening to the Beatles make their music without any digital stuff and it sounded digital. So it, it, it is what it was. I, I agree with you in the sense that there's a lightheartedness to this, even though they're, we're the best, we're the greatest, this and that. There is a lightheartedness to this album. That's what impressed me when I listened to it, Derek, was I thought it was fun. And when I listened to the album Zach gave me, as much as I liked it, it wasn't fun. 
And I found this to be more of a tongue-in-cheek, fun kind of approach. They're such good writers. I wish they had done more, even in the first-person narrative, told more of those kind of narrative stories and fewer of the... I mean, it's 17 tracks, for God's sake. It could have been 10 and been, I think, more powerful album, to be honest with you. The thing about it is it plays nicely in the background, so it's not like it... And it's not overly long, even though it's 17 tracks. It's not super long. It's only about an hour, I think. Hour 12. Hour 12. Okay. It feels to me like it moves much faster than that, so... All right. Well, how about we move on to track number three? Track number three is a fun one. It's called Brand New Funk. The most original, amazing, astounding, miraculous, remarkable, startling, sensational, stupendous music that has ever been created is ours. But believe me, it was complicated, but we have done it. So now we can breathe along a weighted sigh of relief. This isn't a publicity stunt. It's the raw, untouched, pure, hard, brand new funk. So as you can tell, I, these songs are kind of interesting. It's hard to pick clips, right? You, you got to kind of get an extended element here in trying to make the point about this sort of self-promotion and self-aggrandizing is why I picked that. You know, the most original, amazing, astounding, miraculous, remarkable, startling, sensational, stupendous music that has ever been created. That's sort of the theme of a lot of the songs, right? I find that line very funny because they, they like they got the thesaurus out, baby, and they went through every sort of thing they could. Do you think they're being tongue-in-cheek here? Or do you think there's a little irony to that? I think part of me does in the sense that, you know, to Derek's point, this is what groups were doing back then to self-promote and try to get an edge in the marketplace or whatever it was. Or when they went to a place where they battled against each other, this is what they had to, you know, to sit there and throw down like they were doing a duel. So they're all trying to talk about the superiority thing, but it comes off to me fun. So yes, I do think to a certain degree, it's tongue in cheek. I, I think it's performance. The flip side of that is I think you probably in the music industry have to believe that to get anywhere in the music industry, right? When we talked to the guys from the procession about they had that great album and they didn't go anywhere. And I think it was John who said, we didn't think that way. Yeah. The bands who made it all went in saying we're going to make it and we just put good music out there and we didn't really promote or market ourselves and so that's the flip side of that right so i think they're doing it but i think they are doing it tongue-in-cheek i honestly do but i think in that marketplace you got to believe that too i do want to say in this one when the scratching is sprinkled in and is part of the sonic landscape i don't bump on it i don't mind it as much it's when it's like a whole track of it that's the primary thing you're supposed to be listening to that it bothers me and it's kind of lower pitched in at least this song. So it's not ringing in my ears <laughs> in as unpleasant of a way. But yeah, when it's part of the compilation, I'm fine with it. So I do enjoy this song. Dad, what did you give this one on the self-aggrandizing score? Oh, I gave this one a five out of five. It was the thesaurus. <laughs> yeah, it's all superlatives in here. Yeah, for sure. I just don't necessarily agree with it either, which is the other problem. I'm not sure I would call any of the lyrics on this album genius in the slightest. And that's why if it's tongue in cheek, it's maybe slightly better. 
I don't know. I just, Will Smith strikes me as a pretty cocky guy anyway. And so if he genuinely believes he's a literary genius, I have problems with that. I do. <laughs> By the way, this was the first single. It was released in December of 1987. And Derek, when did you say you bought the album? June. June of 1987. You had it in your hands before even the first single came out in December. And by the way, this is, it's in my top five. This is number five. I looked at this one long and hard about maybe putting this one in my top three. But again, I ended up with the story once more than this one. But I do like this song a lot. I do want to point out my favorite lyric. We made a musical composition, which we think is a remedy to cure all the dance floors that's empty. I do like that. I think that's cute. Like an empty dance floor needs curing and we're here to fix that. I think that's charming. Is it genius? I don't think so. <laughs> so this is my third favorite for a couple of reasons. We dance to it. <laughs> when you say we, who are we talking about? We. <laughs> oh, you're not naming names? <laughs> we. The other thing was, was this was one of the songs that Jeff Mills would take the background music out of, right? No lyrics. And he would mix that into that Friday night dance party, skate party mix. So this is my number three, not because of the lyrics, but the music itself was used in many, many forms in many, many ways. And I know you guys are listening to it for the first time, but the music itself on this track was used in many different forms by many different people, by the way, too, as well. Yeah, that's the reason I had it up high, Derek, was I, I liked the music on this one a lot. And I did, you know, the clip I picked is probably the part you're talking about. There's no vocals over top of that. So you could lift that and you could sample that in other stuff all day because it's just a very hypnotic, repetitive piece of music. I feel like efficiency is king tonight. Well, there's 17 tracks. You gotta be. I know. And this will be the last one before we rate our first beer. And that is uh, track number four, Time to Chill. First of all, on the self-aggrandizing scale, I gave this one a four out of five, <laughs> Abigail, in case you're curious. An ingenious, <laughs> perceptive, brilliant, a very clever move. We're back to the thesaurus here. That's the line that I circled. That, that was why I gave it a four. Mm -hmm. The other thing about this, I like this song. And one of the things I like about it is that whistling part there, I 
could never figure out where it's from, but it's from a very famous song, that melody. I don't know that that is lifted from the actual song or not, but that whistling thing is um, definitely from another song. And maybe Derek will have some insight on that. But I instantly recognized it and that drew me into this song. And this one has a really lighthearted feel to it, which I like. Again, comparing it to the music and the other songs we've heard so far, especially the last one, which was pretty funky. Again, the tempo is very similar throughout the album, but the music is very, very different. This is a great example of that. This has got a very 70s Burt Bacharach kind of vibe. And I'm not sure the song I'm thinking about is not from that era. I did respond to this one very quickly the first time through. But again, because of the nature of what the storytelling is, it got pushed to the bottom because the other things bubbled up that I thought were more interesting lyrically. This is my third favorite song. I love the whistling. That made this song really stand out for me. And the tempo, it's maybe half a beat slower than everything else on this album. And he says, I've been hesitating to make this slow rap song. And it's like (laughs) just the tiniest bit slower than everything else. But even just that tiniest bit slower was enough for me when I was listening to this album that I immediately hooked into that. It sounded different from the previous three songs that we've heard, which all had kind of a very similar beat, very similar rhythm. And this was the first one that kind of pulled me out of that sameness. And I really enjoyed that. Yes, it is self-aggrandizing. Yes, it's very meta. The point of this one is he's like, I'm telling you how you should use this song, right? Yeah. The situations in which you should listen to this song. As the lyrics for the song, it just doesn't work for me. Like, why Why do I, <laughs> why should you care when I listen to this song? But as he points out, it's not really about the lyrics. It's about you use this song as a massage after a day of work, right? You use this song to relax because it's time to chill. From that sense, I did really enjoy the rhythm, the beat, the whistling. And so this is my third favorite. I like it lyrically. I like it musically. I always like in an album that I pick where they take a song, slow it down. This isn't really a love song, but it's meant to be played when you're with your significant other. It's low on my rating. It's in my bottom 10, but I whistle it all the time. But it's a different element, right? It's a slowed down version. Most of the albums I ever will put on a jukebox will have a song just like this one. And I always have appreciation for when they do something like this. Musically, this is the ballad. I guess. <laughs> well, that's Derek's point was it's it's not a love song, but it's ballad-like. A lot of albums you come across, they'll have one or two slower songs on them. They're generally love ballads. This is that slot on this album musically, but you're never going to get a love ballad out of these guys on this album because nothing on here is about another person. A love ballad implies you're going to talk about somebody else. And uh, this is all about self-love. So we're not going to have a love ballad in the traditional sense. You don't think Let's Get Busy Baby is a love ballad? Well, it's a different kind of love ballad. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) That one sure isn't about (laughs) (laughs) self-love. That's right. Well, we've done roughly a quarter of the tracks. I think it's time to rate this uh, first beer of the night, Main Character Energy. What do we think? I think main character energy could not have been a better beer to drink during this album. I think evil genius couldn't be a better brewery, (laughs) (laughs) given Mr. Smith's reputation. You you think Will would consider himself an evil genius? Given Willard's reputation. Let me just remind everybody that his first name is Willard. Anyway, um, as it's warmed up, I think the Kiwi's gotten stronger. Agree. I also think it's a little more hoppy now that it's warmed up. Maybe slightly, but it's still not overwhelming. I don't 
taste dragon fruit per se. Dragon fruit is a very subtle flavor on its own. So I'm surprised that they would choose to put that in a beer. Because like even when you're eating a dragon fruit, like it's kind of a mellow flavor. But I agree with you, Dad. I do taste kiwi. And I think the hops they chose are excellently balanced with those flavors and also excellently balanced in terms of the bitterness and intensity of the hop flavor. So delicious. And I'm going to give it a 4.0, I think. Wow. Five for five. The four that I picked at the last one, they were all fours, and she just picked another four. I'm five for five. I checked the record, and Uncle Derek is correct. The four we had on the last episode, I gave two of them a 4.0 and two of them a 4.25. I got to give kudos to Derek for not only did he prep the album, he also went back and clearly looked at liner notes from his last episode so he could... (laughs) He could weigh in on your beer rating. I'm between a 3.75 and a 4 on this one. Because I don't have tents, I'm going to give it a 3.75. Like it a lot? 3.75 from me. I can't rate it. I'm overwhelmed that I got five in a row with Abigail. Oh, <laughs> uh, really? That's going to be your excuse? Um, well, she's a hard rater, you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, I know. I know she is. She's tough. Especially with IPAs, and you sent three IPAs in this batch. So I don't know what you were thinking. You clearly didn't want to keep your streak. He was thinking <laughs> of me. What are we talking about? And against all odds, this one ended up at a four. It's a four for me. It just seems very, very refreshing. It's one of those summer beers, right? Like if you're sitting out on your patio and it's ice cold and you're with a group of friends. Again, I taste the kiwi a lot. I don't taste the dragon fruit, but it's just light and fruity. It's it's warmed a little bit and it's still crushable. Juicy is is probably the best word for how I feel about this one. So I'm a fan, Uncle Derek. Great job. Five for five so far. And listen, I've had this on tap and you probably rated a 4.5 on tap. It didn't can well. As good as it is, it didn't can well. All I have to say to all that is challenge accepted. Where are we going next on our tour to Evil Genius? Well, it's time to chill. So we're going to go with at adulting. Hashtag adulting. Hashtag. I said at, right? You did. Yeah. <laughs> Hashtag adulting. Well, I am excited to uh, have a sip of this one because it's another tropical fruit flavored juicy IPA, it sounds like. Uncle Derek, will you read the can for us? Yeah, I can't promise you I can read it, though, because I can't see shit. <laughs> you also can't say shit, but that's okay. We can all cut that out. Oh, I can start over. I can read the can, Abigail. I just can't see stuff. Adulting is hard. Damn straight. That was it? <laughs> Hold on, I need a flashlight. (laughs) I'll read it. That's okay. I got it. A guava IPA that paid its rent on time. Adulting is hard. Finding a delicious IPA should not be. Well, look no further. This smooth IPA is infused with all natural guava flavor, making it the perfect reward for remembering to turn the oven off. Cheers. You know, it's not dissimilar from the last one, although I think it's a slightly sweeter. Very confused by this one. What confuses you? There's a flavor in there that I don't like. Oh, really? It's almost whiskey-ish, I believe. Immediately, it tastes and smells, as a matter of fact. Smells? Um, what? <laughs> yes, what? it does. What? Smell and taste. 
strongly of guava. I taste it for sure. Very guava. But then when it hit my tongue, I got kind of a bourbon-y, maybe whiskey, sweet flavor that I just don't really care for. I'm going to have another sip and confirm that I'm picking up the right flavor note. But it is whatever's making it sweet. I don't think I like. For me, I give it the edge over the last one. It tastes like it's been whiskey barrel aged and it doesn't say anything about that. But that is not a flavor I am a fan of. I love bourbon, so. <laughs> Do you think it tastes bourbony? I don't. My impression is, and I always say this about canned and fruit beers, is that they get over-compressed, and then the fruit flavor that you smell and you taste changes. That's my impression. So maybe what you're tasting is that they've compressed the guava into this can to where it changed the flavor of a guava. Yeah, something about the fruit sugars, maybe. That's what I'm getting. Um, I like it. I don't taste bourbon in it. Yeah, and I'm with you. I don't get the bourbon element of it either. I do get the sweetness. And like the last one, it'll be interesting to see as this warms up, does that change it too? But I'm giving this one a slight edge over the last one for me. I, I think it's a little more flavorful. You know, again, I don't get the aroma, as we all know. We've already discussed that. But um, <laughs> so the, I have to have the stronger flavors. And uh, so this one I would give a slight edge to. I agree with you that the flavors are stronger. I just don't like the flavors. <laughs> <laughs> this is what I'm going to say too, Abigail. When they aerate, like maybe you should pour it in a cup, let it aerate a little bit rather than drink it out of a can. Um, I'm drinking mine out of a glass, right? You guys laughed at me because I poured mine out of a can knowing that they were fruit based because the flavor changes. So, you know, maybe you want to take half of it and pour it in a, uh, in a glass. You know what? Just for you, I'm going to go get a glass. Bring me one too, Abigail. In fact, bring me, if you find the glass Derek's using, bring me my version of that. I think okay, it's Okay, well, the, I'm not going to look for that, but. You may not be able to reach it, actually, now that I think about it. Vertically challenged. Abigail found my, uh, flight squad zoom glass from the pandemic all right i'm having my next sip from the glass and we'll see if it's aerated anymore now i don't notice too much of a difference there it is a little less intense in the glass all right we moved on to glassware and now we're going to move on to additional tracks so we're going to move on to track five now track five is kind of a fun song it's called charlie mac parentheses the first out the limo end parentheses first impression of this song is that it's a song about somebody other than the artists. You're killing me, Dad. It's in the world of the artists, but we actually have a third person narration here. 
which I greatly appreciate. So even though the fourth wall is kind of broken, it's sort of a story about them. It's really about somebody in their sphere of influence. And it's my third favorite song on the album as a result of that. Love this song. My second favorite. How about that? For pretty much the exact same reasons. How about that? That's funny. Yes, I love that they're introducing this new character. They have so much to say about him. He's this larger than life figure, the way they portray him. But because they're not talking about themselves anymore, I'm more inclined to believe the character that they're making out of this guy. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, there's some hyperbole there, right? I don't think he really- I'm not sure he was actually 6'6", for example. Oh, I would believe that. I don't think he killed a man. Later on, they say he killed a man and stuff sure, like that. Sure, And, and the, the hyperbole of, I love the Philadelphia reference of Apollo Creed and Drago from the Rocky films. I think that's very cool. Philadelphia-centric, right? The point is, the hyperbole is more believable when it's about someone else. And it's also more recognizable as hyperbole because of the specific examples they're using. And I love that this guy who hangs out with them and is in their posse has lore. I find this song so incredibly charming. I want to learn everything about Charlie Mack. I love that they call him by his full name the entire song. I find that very charming too. And he's the first out the limo because he's basically their bodyguard, right? Right, right. You understand that that's his role based on everything we learn about him. But also the fact that he's the first out the limo is actually a very potent line. And I love it. I wish they gave this kind of treatment to more of the groupies in their crew. I would have liked to know more about their perceptions of the people around them instead of them just talking up themselves the whole time because I really, really enjoyed this song. It's in my top 10. Okay, well, that doesn't say much on this album, <laughs> you realize. <laughs> that means it could also be in your bottom 10. Yeah. Like I could split this album up in thirds and pick a one, two, three based on what we did at the time we were listening to the music because of the diversity of the album. As, as Abigail mentioned, this is their bodyguard, right? So you can just envision this guy stepping out of the limo at 6'6". Six, six with a suit on just pushing people away right but to abigail's point i said this when we did the incubus album is that they always gave a song to the dj in this particular case they didn't need a song for the dj because he's in every song so they gave a song to their bodyguard which i think is very very cool you know when i say it's in my top 10 it's probably closer to five than it is the 10 and musically i liked it a lot too as well Agree. Yeah, I like it musically a lot too. And by the way, there's another song like this later on about the beatbox guy. So they do it a couple times on this album, Derek, where they do highlight other people in the band, which I greatly appreciate. I wish there were more like this on other topics. They're totally capable of telling these kind of fun stories about other stuff. What's the other song, Derek? It's your favorite summer song. Summer, summer, summertime. Summertime. Yeah, yeah. Right? Summertime. Summertime. It's a classic. Like if you're sitting at a family barbecue in the middle of the summer and you play Summertime, I don't care who you are. It makes the barbecue. But it's evergreen because it's about what it was like to live in a city in the summer. It's a more evergreen lyrically. And that's what makes it such a classic. The thing about summertime, it's about being at a black barbecue. 
that's why it's so great. It's really historic, honestly. And see, that's a song about a thing, right? That's why I was saying it's a more evergreen thing because it's about a, a snapshot of life. And this is a snapshot of a person. So it's the same kind of thing. It's a snapshot of their life and their interactions with this guy, right? But it is about the legend of who this guy is and his role in the squad. And I find that very charming. The comparison with Summertime and Charlie Mack is when you listen to Summertime, you can picture yourself there, right? Like with Charlie Mack, it's like reading Stephen King, right? The impression of Charlie Mack walking out of the limo first, this big strapping guy who, in his words, snaps necks and whatever, right? But you can just picture this limo pulling up and this guy getting out and standing there while Jazzy Jeff and the Fresh Prince walk out. It's kind of like book writing, right? As soon as they start to sing it, you just envision in your own mind whatever you want to envision. All right. How about we move on to track six? Track six is As We Go. I saw a couple girlies and they were looking pretty good. If you know what I mean. So I freshened my breath and stepped on the scene. I walked over to him, stepped in between them. One or two, the other. I think that I've seen him somewhere before. I said, sweetheart, you might have. She said, oh yeah, it was last night at that party. I said, yeah, I tried to talk to you there, but you were acting as if you were scared. She said, I'm not scared now. I said, bet, well, let's go then. She said, but hold up, what about my friend? I said, I got a friend. So the three of us left, went back to my crib and gave a call to Jeff. Five minutes later, Jeff walked in and I thought to myself, yeah, now the fun begins. But the girls started bugging and they said, now we want dinner in the best restaurant in town. We want caviar and lobster tails, both by candlelight and on Perignon. I said, yeah, right. Y'all must be crazy. And Jeff said, you know, I really think it's time for these ladies to go. We walked them to the door and told them they were dismissed. And it went a little like this. But that was okay. That was all right. Because we still had fun that night. You know it. The moral of the story is plain and visible. We always watch out for those kind of women. But the past is the past and the present is the present. And we feel that everyone should be sitting down. So you all don't miss. And we go a little something like this. So I played that clip specifically to trigger Abigail. So I'll, I'll defer to her for some early comments on this particular song. Okay. Rap artists talking about gold digging women who only want to be with them for fancy dinners and Dom Perignon. Like, okay, really original <laughs> thoughts you're having there, Mr. Fresh Prince. It's just whatever, you know? Yeah, uh, obviously misogynistic. And, you know, going back to what Derek was saying earlier about it's not the language that we hear in some modern hip-hop with really derogatory terms towards women is one thing, and this album doesn't include any of that. Right. Which is part of why you walk away with the impression that it's a more lighthearted album. But the flip side of that is there's still these elements of misogyny that are present, and this is a good example of that. And it's not even like creative misogyny. Is that a thing, creative misogyny? Well, I don't know. All misogyny is <laughs> bad for the record. But if this is not even a hot take. They brought home these two women, and they are only there so they could get a meal paid for. And like, that's not even a new trope, right? Especially in rap, I feel like the fear of gold digging women is a whole thing. I don't like it. I think the line that bothered me the most in there was, we told them they were dismissed. Exactly. And then the door sound effect to emphasize the fact that it's a dismissal. We always watch out for those kind of women. Yeah, it doesn't, doesn't put people on equal footing, so. Now, they did say women instead of females, which I do have to give them credit for. Or girls. Well, they, they do call them girls multiple times, but. 
<laughs> At least they didn't say females. So now that we beat this song down to its nub, let's see what Derek thinks. <laughs> <laughs> Songs like this are always last on my list. Songs like this are the reason why I quit listening to rap altogether. I just don't like the fact that in rap, in a lot of albums, we just degrade women. This one's lighthearted because the whole album's like fun, but it's, you know, when you dig deep into the lyrics, it's the same thing. Whether you're listening to NWA or any other, what we call product of your environment, rap album, it's just the same. They just said it different in a lighthearted manner. And to me, there there's never been a place in rap and hip-hop that should allow that to happen so my least favorite probably shouldn't be on the album wow Derek's least and the reason this isn't my negative one is because there's one on here i think is even more egregious than this <laughs> i can't wait to hear because i think there might be three <laughs> sure. but uh but this one yeah well i'm glad i picked the clip i picked it doesn't use derogatory slurs but it's derogatory anyway. So we're called it lighthearted because there's no derogatory slurs, but it's really not so lighthearted, right? It comes across as lighthearted, but really the meaning in there is a little bit uh, dangerous. All right, well, how about we move on? Track number seven, it's the song Derek mentioned that brought him to the album, and that's Parents Just Don't Understand. She kicked the shoes off onto the floor. She said, drive fast, speed turns me on. She put her hand on my knee. I put my foot on the gas. We almost got whiplash. I took off so fast. The sunroof was open. The music was high. And this girl's hand was steadily moving up my thigh. She had opened up three buttons on her shirt so far. I guess that's why I didn't notice that police car. We're doing 90 in my mom's new Porsche. And to make this long story short, short. When the cop pulled me over, I was scared as hell. I said, I don't but I drive very well, officer. Almost had a heart attack that day. Come to find out the girl was a 12-year-old runaway. I was arrested. The car was impounded. There was no way for me to avoid being grounded. My parents had to come off a vacation to get me. I'd rather be in jail than to have my father hit me. My parents walked in and I got my grip. I said, uh, mom, dad, how was your trip? They didn't speak. I said, I want to plead my case. But my father just shoved me in the car by my face. That was a hard ride home. I don't know how I survived it. They took turns. One would beat me while the other one was driving. I can't believe it. I just made a mistake. Well, parents are the same no matter time, no place. So to you other kids all across the land, take it from me. Parents just don't understand. Well, well, well. <laughs> Here's what's interesting about this song. First of all, I like the song. I mean, it's in the top half of the album for me, but it's got two parts to it. There's a really funny first part, which I didn't play, which is the shopping trip for school and all the name checking of the shoes, especially shoes from that time frame. That's what's so funny about it. The shoes he's picking out there that he's complaining about not getting, people would look down on those now for other things. I mean, it's just, it's a crack up, right? All the name check of the name brand stuff and all the things he describes in the store. And it's so funny to me. It's all great. And then all of a sudden it turns on a dime for the second half of the song where the parents leave town and he's there by himself. Clearly he doesn't have a driver's license, right? So he's 16, 15, whatever he is. He takes his mom's Porsche out on a joyride. He picks up a girl fireworks start to ensue in the car that's the part i played the cops pull him over and then we find out it's a 12 year old runaway that he's been kind of undressing in the car and you know it's subtle but disturbing it's not a good thing and then his worry is he's going to get grounded not the statutory rape charge and then there's the parents beating him i don't have a lot of love for that 
it's just a lot of bad things there in that section I played. And despite all that, I still like this song. It's musically very cool. You can't deny it. The first half of the song is charmingly funny. I just don't know why you would come out of that. Like parents don't understand why I need these shoes to go to school is way different than parents don't understand why I was date raping a 12 year old in my mom's Porsche. Talk about apples and oranges. It's just such a weird twist. And this was the second single. This was released in February of 1988. And this was the song that you heard, Derek, that brought you to the album. And there's some pretty disturbing elements in that, even though we're talking about how this is kind of a lighthearted hip hop album. That's some pretty intense stuff that goes on in that section that I played. So anyway, I lyrically had some problems with that and still like the song a lot. It's really catchy. Yeah, I was all ready to be on board with this. Because it's true. Parents just don't understand. Hey, watch it. And that is a fact. No, it's not. (laughs) The craziest thing to me is how juvenile he behaves toward his mom when they're shopping. He's not acting like a 16-year-old. You know, he's just acting like a bratty kid. Have you ever raised a 16-year-old? You know I haven't. (laughs) Okay, well then. Come back to me sometime. But he's being such a dick to his mom. He seems so young and immature in that part of the song. And then in the next part of the song, Dad, like you mentioned, he's having this very creepy interaction in his car with a 12-year-old. And it's it's obvious how much older he is than her. The juxtaposition is so weird to me that two sentences ago, he was complaining about a pair of shoes or whatever. And now he's like in actual trouble with the law. And it's like, what? <laughs> Those don't go together in the same story. And like you said, he's now committing crimes and he's like, oh God, parents... They just don't understand. You were in jail, sir. Like (laughs) This is no longer a matter of your parents not getting you. Just bizarre. And there's no way that 12-year-old didn't look 12. He said something about check out her bodily dimensions, which, ew. Come on, she's 12. Like, what kind of bodily dimensions can she possibly have, you know? The whole thing is disturbing. I don't like it. It's near the bottom for me. I understand completely. <laughs> so this is four on my list. Number four. Yeah, I get it. Primarily because it drove me to the album. But let's be clear. We're talking about an album that's 25 years removed from what was semi-okay back then and not okay now. I don't know if 12, though, 12 years old, was that ever really okay? It's not okay. But if you listen to the album in 87 and you heard these lyrics, they didn't sound or weren't as bad as they are listening to them today from how the world has changed in the last 25 years. Were they okay back then? No, not really. Do they sound way, way worse today than they did back then? Absolutely. So it's the changing of the times, right? When we were kids, you often heard that Oh, you know, I did something wrong, man. I, my dad smacked me on the back of my head with the back of his hand, right? That was okay. It's not It's not okay today. So when he talks about his parents beating him, like 1987, that was common. Probably more common now than it should have been, too. Just to be clear, right? There are populations of people where it's still okay. Yeah, let me ask you a question, Eric. If he said she was a 15-year-old runaway versus a 12-year-old runaway. In a kid who's 16 or 17. That's a little different, right? But 12 is super creepy. And for him to pick 
that she was 12. I mean, that was a lyric he wrote. He consciously made the decision that she was a 12-year-old. He knew that was shock value, right? He knew that that was wrong because why else would that be the punchline of the song? Because it wouldn't have been the punchline of the song if he didn't know it was wrong. Well, I think the thing for me is that it's sort of like the non-apologies, apologies of our current political climate. He doesn't say, I made a mistake. He says, my parents are mad at me. His concern is the way he's going to be treated by his parents, not that he had this inadvertent interaction with a 12-year-old. Who he then proceeds to portray as though she were the one initiating everything when he's missing the point that she's a 12-year-old girl. But my point is, Abigail, to the whole thing, right, wrong, or impartial in the realm of time, 25 years ago, the things we hear about today that we're like, oh my God, really? When they were bad back then, it was like, oh. And I'm not saying they were right. They weren't right. That's why we changed as a culture to today. I hear what you're saying. I do. Things were, they weren't just a little bit different. They were a lot different. We came a long way in 25 years. You know, those lyrics didn't sound that bad back then. Like you just blew them off. It was just part of society. Today, when you listen to them, you're like, Jesus, like you said, holy smokes, he wrote about that. Why would he write about that? I'll make an argument that in the first part, you can make the argument that parents don't understand. And in the second half, parents shouldn't understand. He's just like, well, parents just don't understand. And I'm like, well, I'm on the side of the parents here. So did he write it that way? Is that the intent of the song? That's another possibility here. Because again, I don't think this is really about Will Smith. I think this is a social commentary. So Part of me thinks that the reason the two sections are so different is to make the case that on the one hand, he's saying, oh, parents just don't understand when it's talking about bell-bottom jeans and double-knit slacks and stuff like that. It's kind of funny. And then over here, you're like, well, parents just don't understand why I would steal a Porsche and fondle a 12-year-old. And I'm with the parents here. And even I think in the year that this song was written, I think people would side with the parents. 12 is really pushing the envelope there. To Abigail's point about the shock value of it. And there's a difference between this happening, which may or may not have been acceptable at the time, and then writing about it on an album. Now, I'm not saying this song in particular is like braggadocious, but on an album where everything else is all about braggadociousness and, oh, I'm so great and everything, to write about this instance in that context of the album, I think is a completely different beast to write about it, to share that experience. And dad, I don't believe that 17 year old Will Smith wrote that verse so that parents would be on the parent's side. First of all, he's not writing this album at 17. This is years into their career. I don't like the thing about the 12 year old, but I think this is social commentary and a little bit satire to make the point about it's the kids that don't understand. It's the parents who do. And so I think this song works way more than you think it works. Do I like that it's a 12-year-old? No. The reason it's not in my top three is because it is a 12-year-old. But all that being said, it's different than the other songs on the album. I think the fact that it appealed to Uncle Derek when he was a teenager kind of negates the fact that the true message is it's actually the parents who are more in touch. I fail to see your argument there. Well, we're not going to see eye to eye on it and we'll leave it at that. So we will move on to track number eight. And that's the relatively delightful song, Pump Up the Bass. I like my music loud, the volume pumping, the kick drum bumping, the people jumping up out of their seats when this record comes on. You think something 
something's wrong, the bass is too strong. You don't have to check your record, it's not defective. It's just the way we wanted it. Pump it, get it. We like it loud, strong like a mango force. I am the lyricist, Jeff is the rhythm source. This combination is virtually omnipotent. That means invincible. You know, dominance, don't you cross our path? Just stay out our face so we'll knock you down. Another one that's uh, fun musically. I did give it, Abigail, the self-aggrandizing score of five out of five, mostly for the thesaurus line of the track, which is this combination is virtually omnipotent. That means invincible, you know, dominant. So we not only got the thesaurus out, we explained to everybody how a thesaurus works. That's more dictionary than thesaurus. But again, I think the title, Pump Up the Bass, and the fact that this is a very bass-heavy track with that sort of repetitive bass line in it is really fun musically. So this one was one I kind of locked into because of that. I don't really have much to say about this one. It's another similar song to what we've been hearing about the same topics we've been hearing about. (laughs) In this one, he maybe gives a little more detail about the source of the samples or the sort of inspiration for Jeff's beats. So yeah, we get a little more peeling back the curtain on how they're making this music, but we've heard it before. We know everything they are saying in these lyrics, and I don't find the music to be too terribly different from what we've already heard on this album. So yeah, I don't have I don't have that much to say about this one. You brought up about a little bit of their backstories in here too, the stuff about meeting after school and how they came to even be a, a recording team, which I thought was interesting. And we get maybe a sentence or two in each song about how they do what they do and how they make what they make, but I think they could have put all of that into one song and that would have been sufficient well this is my number two and it has nothing to do with the lyrics but you know back then we would put woofers and tweeters and whatever we could in the car to make the system you had as loud as it could be and we would want the bass to rattle the shell of your car (laughs) and we would cruise every street we could where there was people to make them hear it and this was one of those songs that even if you didn't have it playing in your car somebody had it playing in their car you know if you listen to the song the lyrics are very very low compared to the instrumental part of the song which was intentional So when you played it in your car, you had the bass and the scratch. That was the high volume. So when you played it when you were driving down the street, you wouldn't hear Will Smith singing and talking all his whatever he was talking. And people played this a hell of a lot (laughs) driving down, whether it be the Ave and Vineland or wherever we were at. You would hear this all the time. And this was another one of those ones that Jeff Mills would infuse into his mixology on a Friday night. So this one, as I mentioned, I said there are some down the list. And this one, for obvious reasons, was number two. Yeah, I like it musically. I, I do get a kick out of this one. There's something about it that I really like. But you're right. I didn't catch that about the mix, Eric. That uh, It's one of the ones where his vocal is not front and center. It usually is on this album. And in this one, it's not. 
it's really secondary to the music on this one. That's a good point. He is very easy to hear and understand on most of these songs. Like you don't have to look up the lyrics to hear the words he's saying. He's clear as day. All right, my friends, I think it's time to rate uh, hashtag adulting. Uh, first of all, I'm going to give adulting itself uh, zero out of five. Not the beer, just adulting as a rule. I think adulting sucks and I'd like to give it up. Now, on to the beer. I like this one slightly better than the last one. Uh, I think the fruit flavor is just slightly stronger. I think it's a little bit sweeter. Other than that, it drinks very similarly, but I am going to give it a three, seven, five, just like the last one. Yeah, I'm in agreement. It's a three, seven, five. I poured it in my glass, let it breathe because that's what I do with fruit beer. And um, at the end of the day, it was similar to the draft. So it's a three, seven, five. I'm very sorry. Don't do it, Abigail. Don't do it. I have to break your streak. <laughs> I know it. I feel like I was drinking a different beer from you all. I'm going to give this a 2.75. Whoa. Whoa. I would not drink it again. Really? <laughs> yeah, I don't know what it was. There was some flavor in there that I really, really thoroughly disliked. It gave it a booziness, a heavy sweetness that I did not enjoy, and I would not drink it again. It was probably the 12-year-old hops. Ew. <laughs> In hop years, that's probably of age, too. So we can't even make that comparison. Brewers just don't understand. <laughs> All right. Where are we going next, Eric? Porter or Imperial IPA? The Porter's going to be last. So we're going to have to go with... Challenge Accepted. So next up's Challenge Accepted, the Hazy Imperial IPA, again from Evil Genius. And the can says the following. Suit up for a major dose of flavor. The bitterness, super low. The optics, hazy. The hops, an explosion of juicy Idaho 7, Matuka, and Zamba. Enjoy the beer. Challenge accepted. Do you understand the reference of suit up and challenge accepted? It's from the show How I Met Your Mother, the character Barney Stinson. The show actually from which my cat's name Marshall comes. But this is a different character, Barney Stinson, who was known for wearing a suit and saying things like challenge accepted. So another very millennial name and concept for this beer. I didn't get the reference. Well, that's why I explained it. I hate to tell you, I didn't know this was a show. I only knew it was a show because the kids watched it here and I would walk through and go, oh, there's that again. I liked it enough to name my cat after it. By the way, I, I like this enough. I'm going to name my next dog challenge accepted. I actually really do like this. The bitterness is super low and the hops are juicy. Have to agree with the can. I find it hard to believe it's an imperial. All right, let's wrap up the back half of this album. We're not even to the back half, by the way. Let's get busy, baby. We're still on the back half of disc one. Uh, I'm sure Abigail will have lots to say about track nine. Let's get busy, baby.
nothing but a hassle. You can come with me and go chill in my castle. Oh, what a wonderful time it would be. Imagine. So the only comment I would make on this is we start off with a guy who's uh, not the most respectful towards women. And Mr. Smith comes in and goes, that's no way to talk to a lady. Let me show you how to do this. And then doesn't really improve much. No. And by the way, we got our thesaurus out and we described them as women, girls, ladies, sweetheart, and toots. Yeah, toots. Toots is the one that gets me. Yeah, I, I'm not sure I cared for that lyrically, but musically I liked it. I thought it was fun musically. Oh, chicks. You forgot chicks. Oh, is chicks in here too? Oh, yeah. Look, those other chicks are just good friends. And wife. Wife's in here. Oh, yeah, wife. Anyway, I'd be a nitpicky on it, but I just, I found it very ironic that the first guy made a mistake because he said, can you have some fries to go with that shake? And Mr. Smith, our friend Willard. Yeah. Acts all offended that someone would say that. Whoa, whoa, man. Come on, man. Come on. Let me show you how to do misogyny right. Yeah, same deal. I don't have much else to say. If I were convinced this were tongue in cheek, it would actually be very funny, but I'm not convinced. Yes, I'll say that I don't think he wrote this to be ironic. Like we had that conversation about the other song where I thought maybe he was being above the fray in the joke. I don't think he's doing that here. I think he really thinks that his behavior is better than the other guy. Mm-hmm. At least it comes off that way. I, I got to tell you, I like the, the fries with the shake line. <laughs> it's a classic, honestly. This is 17 on my list. It goes with the same thing that I never, ever really enjoyed a song that didn't respect women. So that's really all I got to say. I'm so proud of you. My young Padawan. Well, you've you've now picked two least favorites. It can't be number 17. (laughs) It's a a math thing. That's 16. I do appreciate the sentiment, though. (laughs) I put 18. I forgot they took one track out. Sorry. All right. Well, consensus formed. That's unique to us. Well, this was not my least favorite. I know. I think we're heading towards a clash of the Titans, Abigail. So by the way, just so you know, so that wrapped up the second side of the first disc on the old vinyl double album. So we're flipping to the second disc now. So track 10 is the opening track of the second disc. And that's live at Union Square, November 1986. Greetings from my least favorite track on the album. 
Abigail? Me too. <laughs> yeah. I, um... And you picked exactly the right clip. The only note I wrote for this song was WTF. That was my only note for this song. And I stand by that. I wrote two words, misogyny and homophobia. Like why he had to bring up AIDS. There was no reason for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of anti-gay, like all the girls out there who don't like guys. I understand the gag of like, you're trying to get them to be loud. So you say, if you like women, yeah, don't say anything, hoping everybody else is going to scream. But really in Brooklyn, that's a bad call. And then he's 17 and I get it. But why would you put this on this album? Like it's not necessary. The audio quality is not great. I'm sure they're thinking from a historical perspective, this is interesting. And it is interesting that they were at this concert. I didn't play the earlier part of the song where they were giving shout outs to other people in the audience because this was some big event in Brooklyn and there was some classic rap artists in the audience. And these guys were young and upcoming artists. And I'm sure from a historical perspective, this is a very big deal. And at the time, they're not guessing that it's going to have a bad look to it to be like making fun of people with AIDS and making fun of lesbians and, you know, et cetera, making fun of ugly people. These are your fans in the audience and you're calling them out for all the things they might be. It's just ugly behavior. You're kind of intimidating them to scream to not admit things. Right. Like, God forbid people think I have AIDS. I better scream. I'm going to tell you what a big deal that was in the 80s because- Well, of course. You're like, you could lose health insurance if it got out and things like that. It was a big deal to admit openly in a public forum that you had HIV in 1986. Let's be clear when this was recorded. So I can go back in the Wayback Machine and say, even then this was not great. So this is my least favorite one. And it was the minute I heard it, I was like, wow, that's a really- bad to be calling people out yeah i don't think it's a good pick to put on the album the thing i do like though is he calls his beatboxer the human lindrum and i did like that because i think that's clever <laughs> but other than that i find no redeeming qualities to this song Derek, your favorite Derek, number 15 <laughs> that's my number one no, <laughs> yeah this is my 15 but i do have to say it's as bad as the lyrics were that's what they did there's probably a million songs just like that in brooklyn and the bronx and new york with the same thing like if you hear the reception from the crowd somebody's always screaming so that's what they did. His verses were terrible, obviously, for numerous reasons. But if you hear other tracks like that in the 80s and even the 70s when this all started, it's what they did for people to recognize them. Yeah, and I don't deny that. And I think from a historical perspective, it's interesting to have this live recording. I think part of my beef with it is you got this really polished album you put together and then you choose to put this on here and it just seems out of place because of the sound quality. And the second thing is it's the naivete of a 17-year-old. But again, he's not 17 when he's doing this album. This album is from... Two years later? Yeah. I mean, still a young kid. He, his frontal lobe's not completely developed even when he's doing this album that we're talking about tonight. But at some point, you have to look at this and go, you know, he's he's a smarter or better guy than that. Or we believe he is, right? Maybe based on his Oscar performance a couple years ago, maybe he's not. But as he's gotten older, I wonder if he regrets the decision to put this particular song on this album because he really does call out marginalized groups as a member of a marginalized group. He's calling out other marginalized groups. I wonder if he regrets that decision. Because on top of that, despite the historic value, it's not worth putting on here because it doesn't sound great. 
All right, so we're going to move on to track 11 now. Now, track 11 is the first of, I think there's three instrumentals that are kind of DJ focused. This is the first of those. It's called DJ on Wheels. very few comments to make on this except to say that uh, when i was pulling clips i wrote down the note start at timestamp zero for one minute and as i played it now i realized that even that's too long i'm talking about for a clip that's essentially what the song is for whatever length of time it is and this goes back to the point I made earlier abigail's like if i'm playing this i'm work doing some work man i'm doing some banking or some bookkeeping and this is playing in the background i find this mesmerizing to listen to his background music and it doesn't matter that this is three minutes or four minutes or or five minutes whatever it is it's highly repetitive it's very rhythmic but i could have played a 30 second clip and you would have got the sense that i didn't need a minute because it is so highly repetitive and this is one of those scratch tracks and i think probably abigail when you weigh in on this you're gonna go well this is one of those ones where it's so scratchy and it's in a higher frequency maybe i don't like it for that reason and i get that i don't have a particular problem with that i find that a fascinating skill set and an interesting sound so i don't like or dislike that like this would be kind of middle of the packish for me but when you play a one minute clip the way we're doing it tonight it almost sounds like wow that's too long Maybe I just don't understand what it takes to DJ Scratch like that. The parts that you played where he pulls lyrics could be other songs on this album. The part you played, I think there was some like back me up, back me up in there, which Will Smith says in multiple tracks on this album. You know, here's my DJ, Jeff's backing me up. He says that a lot on this album. And when he pulls that in, I sort of get a better sense of what he's actually doing with the records and what the scratching is intended to do. I'm not sure I have a complete understanding of the purpose of scratching or what skill that's intended to show off. And maybe that's why I don't like or appreciate it as much. But I do think I got a better sense of that when there were actual lyrics involved. Does that make sense? It absolutely makes sense because there are other places as we head into this back half of the album where it's a little more DJ focused where Will Smith will do a call. I'm sorry, Willard Smith will do a call and response with DJ Jazzy Jeff and he'll be running the record back to get the same word repeatedly. So he knows where he's at in the disc right. and where the language is that he wants to answer with. And so knowing that, where you are on the vinyl to be able to lift a single word and bring it back to say it in time as a response to what Will Smith is saying. I'm sorry, Willard Smith. I think that's an amazing skill set to be able to do that. And when there's words involved, it's more impressive. I agree with you, Abigail. But remember, when we talk about sampling, 
and Derek can correct me if I'm wrong on this, you know, somebody would have Every Breath You Take or some other song there and they would play it and they'd wind it back and play it again. They'd wind it back and they'd play it again. They'd wind it back and they'd play it again. That's the sampling part. It becomes digitized in a production, but when they used to do these things live, they would sample an old song as the rhythm or the background for what they were going to do. And so they're doing that in real time live. That's an amazing skill set. Some of that I don't think translates so well to a produced album because I think the skill sets watching somebody do that in a real venue. And if you're scratching the record back to get to replay a section that you've just played, that's one thing. If you're scratching just for the sake of hearing the scratch noise, that's where I'm like, I just don't, I don't get it. I don't think it's just for the noise. I think it's they're going back and forth, back and forth, back and forth to, for the timing sometimes, you know? So yes, it's partly the sound, but also they're running it back and forth so they can get to the place when it's time for them to do the next piece. But I'm going to defer to the expert because he's here. It is a musical skill set by far. I mean, it was a gift. It's an amazing thing to see, to watch somebody pull a record back one inch to get to that same spot to say the same thing over and over and over again. And you don't really have to say it to appreciate it. You just have to envision it. But these guys use their hands with the record needle and made that shit happen. What they make happen? Made that stuff happen. <laughs> it was a part of music that was unique, right? It's no different than the greatest guitar player you ever saw or the greatest drummer you ever saw or the greatest whatever. It was a time when these guys made music scratching records boogie down production said the best way you know i'm not a musical genius or b-boy fanatic i simply made use of what was upstairs in my attic and they did it they went up in their attic mom and dad had a bunch of records and they used it to create new music how refreshing someone admitting to not being a genius that's new for us tonight but, you know, that's what they did. You know, I lived it. I just kind of like blew through it and saw the whole thing. For Abigail, it's new to her, so she don't understand it. You know, one of the things you might understand, Derek, is that she never lived in an era where you played a lot of things on vinyl. You and I understand what it means to put a record on a record player with a needle and play it through and get sound out of it. When you were talking about these guys, you know, going back and forth an inch to find the lyric, I had trouble cueing an album up in the studio at the radio station. You know what I mean? Like finding the first lick of the song and doing the wine bag and setting it up so that when I hit the button, it was the right speed when the song started. So I appreciate what the skill is to do what they're doing. So whether you like the sound or not is one thing, but I think you and I come at it with an appreciation of what it means to be able to do that with a piece of vinyl and a record needle. It really, truly is an amazing skill set. I do agree with Abigail. I don't simply like the fact that when they scratch a record, you just scratch it. But I do have to say that they scratched the record in the rhythm of the music. So I can understand that. But when they do it and there's that extra music in there, it's better. I think my favorite song is like four songs from now. It has a riff from Run DMC. And when I tell Abigail that that's the greatest riff of rap of all time, and it was done with the DJ who was scratching, she's going to shit her pants. Well, she's going to do what now? What am I going to? What am I going to do? You're on poop your pants. I'm sorry. I can't wait. I cannot wait to poop my pants. I, I hope that doesn't happen because then there's a cleanup at the home office, and I just can't deal with that tonight. <laughs> I think Abigail's 
and maybe I'm putting words in her mouth, but I think Abigail's biggest problem is the frequency. Sometimes it sounds like fingernails on a chalkboard. If it's highly repetitive, like later on, you know, Jeff's doing his thing and Will will go, now do it without any music. At that point, you're just scratching to hear the sound of scratching. And that's what I don't get. Just the noise of scratching, I don't find pleasant. Abigail, I just have one question for you. Because scratching is an art form. If you were listening to a record and it stopped and the guy scratched the record, or if a guy was doing a song and played a drum solo, what's the difference? The difference is scratching is not a sound I like. It's sort of like me with falsetto. Like I can take some falsetto, but I can't take a ton of it. Yeah. As we had a deep dive on a couple episodes ago. I'm not a falsetto fan if it's overdone. Yes. So it's same thing here. I like it as flavoring. Flavoring, not the main ingredient. Correct. Now we're doing a cooking show. I am uh, running low on Imperial IPA. So I'm going to suggest we move on to track 12 so we can switch beers. Track 12 is my buddy. Please pay attention to my rhyme so I can tell you all about this pal of mine. He's my buddy, my best friend. When it's a beat, I need it to beat he'll land. I want to take time out to talk about him. Because frankly, I don't know what I would do without him. We work together like a medical crew when I'm back. Ready up. I'm back and prince up too. Trying to be us that doesn't make any sense. He's ready, Roxy, and I'm the Fresh Prince and the rap industry. We're ranked as first. Ain't a better combination in the whole universe. So if you want the battle, your future looks muddy, cause you just can't beat my buddy. So I think I mentioned earlier that there's a song on here where they focus on their beatbox guy, Ready Rock C. And so I like this for what it is. I think this is fun to drill down and focus on a guy who's providing vocal rhythm, which is another hip hop style instrument, right? Abigail, we're talking about using the discs. This is another thing that hip hop artists use because remember, a lot of these guys are performing in clubs. And so you don't need to bring a drum kit in if you have a guy who can do this. I think it's nice to focus on the beatbox guy. I like this song because of that. I think it's cool. And I think it's another one where they deflect from themselves and showcase somebody else. And I appreciate that. Anytime Willard will do that for me, I'd be very happy. I agree. I like that they made him a character. The song is about him in addition to him being a prominent part of the song. And I like that. So it would be one thing like on the Incubus album in the DJ song, we didn't get any backstory on who the DJ was. We, you know, we didn't get any lore about him. And in this one, we get lore about Ready Rock C. And I like that. We get a display of his skills and his contribution to the music. And we get a little bit of info about him. And I think that's a perfect combo. So I enjoy the song. I think it's a little condescending that he's called my buddy. But, you know, whatever. It's the least of the crimes on this album. Yes, it's the 12th most egregious crime. We are on track 12. So this track's underage. Yeah. And in four tracks, we'll be at track 16, which is also underage. In fact, I don't believe there's a track on this album that's not underage. I know Abigail said something about my buddy, but Roots, Posse's, whatever, 
they were buddies. So, like, this guy probably was his buddy. And as I mentioned, they always tried to put a track in for the DJ, the beatbox guy. It's cool. It's low on my list. Probably 15 on the list. Uh, uh, no, 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 no. We've already heard number 15. Yeah, you're at 14 now. Has to be 14. Because 15 was live at Union Square. I've written it down. We're fact checking here. <laughs> All right, whatever. <laughs> you keep track of it. It doesn't. It doesn't take the fact that it's cool that they do that, right? They're not important to me in the realm of the album because I'm used to always hearing a DJ single, beatbox single. We're not used to hearing that. That's why it's fun for me. I don't know if it's fun for Abigail, but it's fun for me to hear this shout out to the people involved in it. I like that. Uncle Derek, you know, on other albums where they had a whole track dedicated to the beatbox guy, for example, did they talk about who he was or was it just him showing off his skills or was it like an introduction to who this guy is? Um, Sometimes it was, sometimes it wasn't. It just depends on who the artist was and where they were in the album. So sometimes it would be really, really great respect. And sometimes it would be just like, here's your chance. And they would just cut in. This guy would just beatbox. That's all you would hear. And, you know, from the opposite side of the spectrum, the guy beatboxing, if they didn't give him homage, he knew it was homage from them because they gave him his three minutes of fame. It'd be interesting to see if, like, uh, for a particular group, if the first time they did a song with the beatbox guy, if they gave a little backstory. And then after that, it was just sort of, here's your Ringo track. Meaning, you don't need to reintroduce the guy album after album after album. He's been introduced sure. four albums ago. Here, we're getting an introduction because it's probably the first time he's been introduced, right? Well, the crazy thing is, in the rap world, most of the stuff was underground. Like, the people that got this album, they already knew who my buddy was. They saw him perform night after night after night in the underground. And then when they finally produced an album, they gave him a song. And everybody that ever went to a Jazzy Jeff Fresh Prince concert said, Oh, my buddy. But you bought the album kind of de novo, so you've never seen the guy perform, right? You're getting this album, here's this thing. What did you think of it? Yeah, I didn't know the guy, but I knew beatbox. Listen, my buddy ain't the greatest beatbox guy of all time. Whoa. Hot take. Shots fired. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's some really good beatbox guys out there. If you, if you just go online and listen to beatbox, you can't believe the music they make with their mouth. You would poop your pants. And some. Yeah, but um, but uh, this guy is so good on the last track of the album. But there's beatbox guys out there that if I sent you the next album and you listen to beatbox guy, you'd be like, man, my buddy wasn't so good. He's not so special compared to other ones out there. Well, that's good. I'm glad we have some context in the larger hip-hop cinematic universe of the skills of Ready Roxy. Be ready, because we have a hundred more albums coming from Uncle Derek, so we'll be able to compare and contrast. Well, he's blacklisted for a, at least another year, so. <laughs> How's that work? You can't come back for a year, so we give other people a chance, that's all. And we'll explain it all when you pick the next jukebox thing, which you will be doing. I ain't doing it. If I'm blacklisted, I ain't doing it. I'm not blackballed. <laughs> Hot take. That's another hot take. And speaking of hot takes, I'm going to rate uh, Challenge Accepted. I'm really digging this beer. This is my favorite of the night. 
I'm going to give it a 4.0. I think it's just a really good, clean, hazy IPA. It certainly doesn't drink like an Imperial, and I like it very, very much. Derek, what are your thoughts? Oh, I like it. It's the same as the first one. 4.0? Yeah, it's 4.0. Light, floral, sit on your patio, enjoy it. I think this one drinks more like an IPA than the first one. I agree. I'm going to give it a 3.75. He's salty. He didn't get another four out of me. Your streak is over, my friend. I agree with you, Dad. This drinks way more like an IPA than the first one, but it's delicious. And I really like that the juiciness in this one is coming from the hops themselves and not from any fruit additions. And I have an appreciation for when brewers are able to use the hops themselves to create such an intense, fruity, juicy flavor. It's not bitter at all, which I really appreciate. Very sedimentatious. Good thing you poured it into a glass. Yes, I wouldn't have been able to see that in the can. Um, So yeah, I like it. And it's a 3.75 for me. All right. So the next beer on our list is my favorite name of the night, at least, Purple Monkey Dishwasher. It's a chocolate peanut butter porter. Here's the can description. If candy and beer had a beautiful liquid baby. So I'm already disturbed because it turns out beer is only 12 years old. Oh my God. Do you like chocolate and peanut butter, but hate all that pesky chewing? Give your teeth a vacation with our rich, full-bodied chocolate peanut butter porter. I'm looking forward to this one. Cheers. 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 It's chocolatey. This is really good. I'm a fan. But I'm a Reese's Cups fan, so I like this one a lot. It smells more like peanut butter than it tastes like peanut butter. Thanks for that. Which I don't mind because I don't like peanut butter. I'm a huge peanut butter fan. I know you are. It's chocolate, but it's very roasty. All right. I'm going to enjoy this beer because it's delicious, but I'm moving on with track 13, Rhythm Tracks. T-R-A-X, Rhythm Tracks, parentheses, house party style. to say about this song i get it for what it is but there's a little bit of that sort of i'm the best that there is we talked about it multiple times tonight i don't need to dwell on it but it seems to be the focus of this but it's a lot more dj driven 
So what I was talking about was this album originally produced with a rapper disc and a DJ disc. And we get in the back half the CD and it's a lot more DJ driven. This is another example of that. This is my On the Cusp song. Wow. How about that? So this was the first one where I sort of felt like I was getting an idea of what the purpose of the DJing was and like what the actual skills involved were. And I had remembered from the Incubus album, the whole conversation we had about the DJ track. And this album does not have just one DJ. DJ track, but this was the one that I felt was the most impressive and the one that had sort of a narrative explanation of what the DJing skill was that I could follow. And so I really appreciated that. So this was my fourth favorite song. Yeah, I'm with you, Abigail. I, this is an example of what I was talking about, where the DJs know where they are on the album, where the lyrics are that they need to repeat, and they're getting there and getting back, getting there and getting back. And it's got to be such a precise skill set that I'm fascinated by. But this was the first time it was really obvious to me what was actually going on. But that's because there's words. Exactly. This is, yes, exactly. So we'll turn to our resident hip pop expert so this is number five only because number four parents just don't understand was the reason why i listened to the album but this was the skate party song that we skated to for a long long time and just the beat of it they didn't play it with the lyrics of skating rink they played the background music um but if you can imagine it without the lyrics and just a bunch of people skating clicking their heels, clicking them skates. It was a wonderful time. It's number five. That's all I got to say. Skating. What a memory. Oh, in my time, dude, that was a Friday night gig. He was out there with your skates on, getting it in. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, that takes us, believe it or not, to the title track of the album, track 14. He's the DJ. I'm the rapper. He's the DJ. I'm the rapper. Rapper, rapper, rapper. Hello. Can anybody hear me? You can? All right, that's good. You can hear me? Okay, it's clear. It's good. Okay, everybody's got it. One, two. One, two, and. My rhymes have been written not to be bitten, but as it seems, some suckers keep forgetting the rules about rapping. But that's all right, because in the next five minutes, I'm going to have them all uptight. Stronger than a dinosaur, better known than sin. I'm in the battles I battle. I'll usually win. I'm in less than a minute, but it all depends on how long it takes your rappers to realize they're trying to defend yourself. It's ridiculous. Didn't you get my messages out of the question? Cut your toys, boys. I'm the real McCoy. I'm really going to enjoy seeing you destroyed. If I was Fred Flintstone, I'd probably own all of bedrock. If I was a criminal, I'd probably own a cell block. If I was in the Navy, I would own the sea, but I'm a poet, so I own the whole rap industry. I'm like a lion, my man, and the streets are my den. It's either kill or be killed, so I kill and kill again and again and again. Some the time rappers, I'll slaughter them. I'll tie them up and throw them in the water, then I'll just walk away like nothing ever happened until somebody else. So it's a little bit of an oddly structured song, right? I mean, it leads into this very extensive rap section. We were at the transition of that, right? This is the first track on side D. So on the vinyl, this would have been the uh, second side of the second disc. So the fourth side overall. I don't have a lot to say about it. It is what it is. It's designed to show the two skill sets. And so when he kicks it in, which is where I pulled the clip, I wanted that transition. I don't have a lot to add to that. I just wanted to reiterate some of the lyrics that you played because I actually do like them, even though they're extremely cocky. If I was Fred Flintstone, I'd probably own all of Bedrock. If I was a criminal, I'd probably own a cell block. If I was in the Navy, I would own the sea. But I'm a poet, 
So I own the whole rap industry. (laughs) That's cute. I like that section. I agree with you. I don't have much else to say though. Again, we've heard many songs like this already. And for this to be the title track, I don't think you eliminate it, but you maybe eliminate some of the other ones that are similar to this one so that you can make way for this as the title track. Well, the only difference though, Abigail, is this does have more DJ focused sections on it. Most of the other songs in the front half of the album aren't structured that way, right? The DJ is kind of an adjunct. I like that this is one where they kind of share the stage. And it's in the back half of the album, which is more about DJ Jazzy Jeff, I feel like. But I'm with you. If I was going to pare this down and make a 10 or 12 track album, this one would make it. And it might be featured earlier in the album. I think it ought to be. Yeah. Since I can't do math tonight, I'm going to drop one down from the bottom of my list. 13. This is 13. Wow. Okay. So here's the thing. This song was written and replicated from an LL Cool J song. because. LL at the time was just like super enormous. Ladies love him is what I've heard. Yeah, but that's his nickname. Ladies love Cool J. That's why it's LL. But anyway, he tries to sound like him in this song, which is a complete turnoff. That's a deep cut. So you don't like it because he's trying to sound like someone else. Exactly. Like LL was great. And this song sounds exactly like an LL Cool J song, which... Just don't try it. I don't need that song with you trying to sound like another artist. Interesting that the title track of the album on which he talks about how unprecedented and amazing they are. He's trying to sound like another artist. Oh, another deep cut. Just go on YouTube tonight and listen to LL Cool J Ring the Bell and you would know exactly what I'm talking about. I'm going to be honest with you. Four beers in at almost midnight. I'm not going to go on YouTube and listen to that tonight. (laughs) But if you'll send me a link, I will gladly listen to that tomorrow over brunch. All right, we're down to the final three tracks, believe it or not. So we're going to start with the next track, which is called the Hip Hop Dancers Theme, track number 15. Much like the last instrumental, I'm going to ask why I picked a 60-second clip and not a 30-second clip, because, I mean, that's essentially what the song is like. And when you're listening to it in real time as an album, you know, it plays and you kind of don't think about it. But when you really drill down on it, here's a minute of this song, highly repetitive, and uh, I'm not necessarily a fan. And if there was a less repetitive section, you probably would have picked it. Maybe. My note was timestamp 56 seconds, question mark, go to two minutes or so. 
It is what it is. I truly don't have anything to say about this for maybe the first time ever. What? You don't have a comment? Yeah, I don't have a single comment. So, guys, the minute that you listen to is the greatest minute in musical history. What? Come on now. It's not a Jazzy Jeff riff. It's a Run DMC riff. Probably the greatest riff ever in rap history. That jingle in the background, that scratching. Yeah. This is my number one song on the album, not only from Jazzy Jeff, but from DMC. So the scratching on this one is not Jeff. That came from the Run DMC track? Yeah. Oh, I like it even less then. Yeah, so why put it on the album? Why put it on the album? Like, why bother? If you're going to lift it and make it part of something more... Yeah, exactly. going to augment it and add to it, I get it. If you're just going to, like, lift it... I might as well just buy the Run DMC album. Yeah, why am I listening to this? No offense, but why? <laughs> you have no defense, right? <laughs> like, it's somebody else's material. If he's not even scratching on it, and that's like what this whole latter half of the album is about. And Will's not singing on it. Mm -hmm. Willard, I'm sorry, Willard's not singing on it. I'm not going to defend it. I'm just going to tell you that you guys both said... Is it your number one song on this album or number one song on the Run DMC album? Listen, if that jingle was on any song for the next 30 years, it would be my number one song. It's the greatest rap jingle of all times. What makes hip-hop dancers theme different from the Run DMC yeah. song? Yeah, is it not theft? Not if he said, can we use it? I don't mean legally. Yeah, I'm not worried about the contract law. Yeah. I'm, I'm saying I'm listening to this album. I assume they're not going to get sued, but like, what did he do? Here's a surprise. I'm not a hip-hop fan, so I don't recognize this as a Run DMC lift. I didn't either. I just hear this on this album and I'm evaluating it as if Willard Smith and Jazzy Jeff are creating this. And it's okay. I don't have anything positive or negative to say about that because it's an instrumental. But you're telling me it's not even theirs and they've just put it on here as a track on a 17 track album. And I don't get that. I'm going to take a stand here. I don't understand that. Or even if that minute was unaltered. Like a minute is a long time. What was in the background? All right. Was in the background of what? What was it? What was it in the background of? Play the minute over again. Because you picked a minute of your choice. I have the whole song. Tell me what section of the song you think I need to play. You can play your minute over again. I'm going to play that minute again. You can comment in real time over top of it, Derek. Tell me why this is different from the original. Because you have, yeah, you have part of the elements of the songs on the album at the forefront with DJ Jazzy Jeff scratching. It says Jazzy Jeff with Run DMC in the background with the, that original riff. Oh, okay. So the scratching is Jeff. Just that bell is Run DMC. Yeah. Okay, if the scratching is Jeff's, then I, I yeah, that's okay. different. All right, that's all different. Right, all right, I, I'm not sure why you make an instrumental with some scratching over somebody else's track and call it a track on a 17 track album. That's just me, but I'm old, and you can all get off my lawn. Seriously, like just get off my lawn. <laughs> <laughs> 
I get and respect the sampling culture and appreciate it in a lot of cases, but this doesn't feel like a sample to me. He's playing a song and scratching over it. Yeah, which is basically a sample. I, I mean, I get that. And listen, I'd rather they sampled an artist's material and gave the artist credit. Well, interpolation is what gets people in trouble in court. Sampling is not what gets people in trouble in court. Exactly. And I understand it's an homage to somebody earlier in the art form, which I think is great. But I'm listening to this cold without knowing the Run DMC history. Right. And I don't have that. Without knowing any of that history, I just assume they did all of this. And they could have. It's not complicated. All right. That takes us to track 16. Track 16 is another instrumental DJ-focused song called Jazzy's in the House. say here it's similar to the last song and I, I going back to what we talked about way back at the beginning the back half of the album is more for dj jazzy jeff than the front half of the album and you get a lot more of his material it is what it is you like it or you don't like it i happen to like it but it's hard to comment on a repetitive scratch track that the basic gist of it is it's him doing his thing i don't necessarily need all of these on here like I said before, I could pare this down to a shorter album and have a real classic here. Well, and spread Jeff's stuff out. Yes. So it goes back to the double fantasy situation with John and Yoko. If you listen to double fantasy, it's a John track. It's a Yoko track. It's a John track. It's a Yoko track. And you have a single disc where it goes back and forth. And there's probably a reason why they ended up choosing to do it that way. Yeah. Have you heard Yoko sing? I haven't. There is a reason. <laughs> I'm not a Yoko <laughs> hater, but I don't need all entire disc of Yoko. I don't need four tracks in a row of Jeff scratching. I just don't. Even if I were the greatest appreciator of this art form, which canonically I'm not. You've made it very clear. I still have a lot to learn about the art and science of DJing and scratching records. But even if I were fully appreciative of it, I don't need this many tracks in a row of the same thing. I just don't. Is that the hill you're dying on? That's the hell I'm dying on. Tonight, anyway. I just want to say that part of what I try to pick and put on there is it's not just the music, it's the time capsule. So, like for Abigail, she says, you know, I don't appreciate this. You know, maybe six years from now when we review four more albums, she'll understand it a little bit better. You guys missed an important 12 years of music. This is one of those albums that you do... Don't appreciate it, but it was relevant in the music industry. 
if you listen to a dozen more rap albums, you would understand this one more than just listen to this one for the first time. So that's all I got to say. I agree with you. It's not that this album wasn't relevant when I was of age to know about it. It's that I wasn't paying attention to that genre because I was locked into my style. And so I like listening to these things and going back. This is an incredibly important album. Something that finished very high in the Billboard Hot 100 as a rap album. Incredibly relevant. Now, all that being said, this particular track, you know, we're talking about, you know, something that's really kind of experimental and different. Maybe I get it. Maybe I don't. All right. That takes us to the final track of the album. This is track 17. It's called Human Video Game. I was younger, I was into video games, trying to whatever, it didn't matter the name. Thousands of my dollars have been poured into all types of games, trying to get the high score. But now I think I have a favorite, it's me against the Nate, he's out my girl, I've got to save her. Oh no, I feel an attack coming on. Yo, ready, Roxy, I want to play a game of Donkey Kong. I have, I would feel the urge, and I go stuck raving mad, breaking to the arcade, screaming and hollering, anticipating putting $25 in any machine, I was out of control, I didn't need quarters, I brought $10 bank rolls, bags of quarters, I was insane, people thought that I worked there and asked me for change, but I would get defensive and yell, leave me alone, these are my quarters, stupid, go get your own, dude walked away with just look in his eyes, like, yo man, I wonder what's wrong with that guy, I was addicted, a video burnout, and I so uh, as a video burnout, really a pinball burnout, I have a great appreciation for this song. I like this song a lot. I like a couple things about it. One is I like the story of the guy who was addicted to putting quarters in video games. But I also like that his buddy, who's the beatbox guy, do the Donkey Kong theme and is sort of his uh, AA sponsor. He's the guy who saves him from this addiction by being able to just do the Donkey Kong theme. So it's very tongue-in-cheek. I like this song a lot. It is my second favorite song on the album. Great appreciation for this song. I like it too. And I love the prominence of the beatboxer on this one. My one beef is, what a bizarre choice for a closing track. We've just had this whole kind of DJ set, essentially. And now we're back to a Will song, if you will, or a rapper song with a story. I just think it doesn't belong this late in the album. I think it's an odd choice for a closer. It's so strong as a track. I think it should be earlier on. And if they didn't want to have a track that featured the beatboxer before the track where they introduced him, just move that one up too. It does end well as a track, though. It's, it's got a defined closing to it. It does end the song well and the album well. But you're right. In the structure of a double album where you're kind of focusing on the DJ on this particular half, it is an odd choice, even though it's a good closer. This song has more impact now. To you, you know, putting quarters in a machine, playing Donkey Kong, it's great. But in the realm of gaming today and society today, 25 years removed from when he made this song, it has a lot more impact. 
he talks about the addiction back then, going to an arcade and putting quarters in. And now we got kids that just sit at home and just play this shit all day long. They play what? They play this stuff all day long. Yeah, now it's not like a monetary impact. Now it's a like time and mental health impact. You know, we went to arcade with, as he said in the song, a roll of quarters and put them in. Now they just sit home all day long. So although it's not really high on my list of songs in retrospect to 1988, it's a huge difference. Well, for me, it, he is looking at something that was a problem even then. We can look back on it and realize how much more of a problem it is. You know, I lived those days of trying to find enough quarters to go play pinball on the Ocean City Boardwalk. And I think video games like Donkey Kong were even worse at that. The games are designed to keep you integrated in the game and keep playing the game. There's no monetary thing. When you buy a $50 video game for your Wii, there's no reason that the guy who designed the game needs to make you addicted to the game. You already bought the game, but it's still addictive. So he's talking about it in 1987, but it still holds true today. You're absolutely right. So that wraps up. He's the DJ. I'm the rapper. I suggest then that we rate this final beer. I second the motion. Did I make a motion? This is my favorite of the night, I think. Wow. Not I. It's in my wheelhouse. I like peanut. I like dark beers. I like a little sweetness. This nails what it's supposed to be. And it's well balanced. You read all those things. Nothing stands out or weighs in too much on it. I like it. 4.0. I like it too. I'm going to give it a 3.75. Good rating from Abigail. I did not get a whole lot of peanut butter in the flavor which I don't mind because I'm not the world's biggest peanut butter fan. It smells like peanut butter, but I mostly in the taste, I got chocolate and roastiness, very dry as porters tend to be. So 3.75. I'll add a four with you, but I agree with Abigail. Not a whole lot of peanut butter, a lot of chocolate, dry as porters are. I'm not really a porter guy. I'm more of a stout guy, but still a four for me. Excellent collection of beers, I think, overall. Abigail had one wild card on adulting, but otherwise we all gave pretty high ratings to everything else, right? Yes. We all gave three seven fives and above on every beer, except for me on hashtag adulting. All right. Well, a couple orders of business. Our next album, Abigail, is our final episode of the year. It's going to be our Christmas episode with a very special Christmas volume three. But we do need Uncle Derek to pick our next jukebox episode, which will end up being several episodes into season four. So do you have any dice or any cards or anything available, Derek? Deck of cards. Deck of cards. Okay. I got the four cards shuffled. Perfect. Pick one. King. He picked a king, which is column E. Take another run at it and give me an ace through nine. Now shuffle the other nine cards. Now I see all of them, but I only need, what do you pick one? Pick one, which is a seven. All right. Our next jukebox will be Diorama by Silverchair, submitted by Ian Reese. Diorama by Silverchair. So Ian Reese, just so everybody knows, has um, been a guest on the show. He's a musician and a soundtrack composer. So that'll be fun. And I will reach out to Ian and we'll make that happen. Thank you, sir. Thanks for having me. All right. I'll talk to you later. Later. In the meantime, if you need more Pops on Hops content, you can find us on all social media platforms, Facebook, 
X, Instagram, YouTube at Pops on Hops Pod, or you can email us at popsonhopspod at gmail.com. Wherever you're listening to this, there should be a link in the show notes to leave us a voice message if that's something that interests you. It would also be a huge help to us if you would rate and review our podcast on any platform on which you're listening, especially Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you listen on those platforms. You can also visit our super cool website, popsonhopspod.com. That's where we post bonus photos, videos, and other materials related to each of our bi-weekly episodes. That is also where you can submit to our virtual jukebox for a chance for your favorite album and even your voice to appear on the pod. And on behalf of Hops. And Pops. And Uncle Derek. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs> I'm too old for this shit. I mean, I know what it means, but it sounds like what it means. You know what I mean? It's it's even if you didn't. What was that? <laughs> <laughs> Who's going to claim that? I am. It was a message. <laughs> sounded like your mic shorted out or something. No, my phone was bugging. <laughs> oh, you're going to blame your phone. <laughs>